Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a we have a founder, a very impressive founder, a founder that is going to tell us all of the good stuff that he learned at Google and how now he is really making it happen with his company Lightstep. So I guess without further ado, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Ben Siegelman. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So originally from Western Massachusetts, Ben, how was life growing up there? Western Massachusetts, you know, it's, uh, I, I'm a nostalgic person by design. I always long for the past. And for a while, I thought I just was feeling nostalgic about it. But as I've gotten older, I've realized it was an amazing place to grow up. It's, you're surrounded by, uh, you know, farms and beautiful things like, you know, nature and rivers and so on. But it's actually pretty civilized. There are a lot of colleges there and it's a nice intellectual atmosphere without being too snobby. So I, I loved it. I, I, if only I could find any way to build a tech company there, maybe I'd move back. <laughs> nice. And you were all, at what point were you um, started to feel this love for math and, and perhaps uh, computers? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I uh, I always did it as a hobby when I was a kid, and and I enjoyed you know tinkering with things. I liked. I used to say I was dissecting things. I would get electronics; they would eventually break, and then I'd take them apart and try to figure out how they worked. And that's always been my my nature. But when I went to school, I was actually absolutely convinced I would never do computer science. Um, I took one computer science class my freshman year, uh, just on a whim. And it was my favorite, my favorite course by far. So I took one, the, the second semester of my freshman year, and it was my favorite course again. And then I realized that I just love it. Like I just absolutely love it. And I, um, I couldn't believe that, you know, uh, my, my good fortune, that is also a, a really great career, but that was kind of a fluke, but I, I've, I've always just been drawn to the, the creativity of it and the problem solving. And, and, um, and that's really what motivates me, you know, now and what motivated me then. Really cool. And, and obviously you went to, to Brown, you did math and, and computer science. And then, you know, that was, that was a very interesting year, you know, a year where there was quite, you know, some, some, you know, some good offer in terms of, of jobs out there. Uh, but you landed, you know, um, uh, a job with this company that was still not public, didn't do the IPO yet. It was, it was called Google. Yeah, that's right. I, I was, uh, when I started at, at Brown in 1999, the, the kids who were graduating that year, were able to wallpaper their dorm rooms with job offers. It was just total 
insanity because there's such a um, hiring craze in tech. And, and then I, you know, was in school through the crash in 2001, 2002. And it was a very, very different picture when I was graduating. And I felt fortunate to be able to work anywhere. Um, Google was relatively unknown at that time as an employer for undergrads, although their search engine was already pretty popular. But, uh, but I, you know, in the summers during college, for better or worse, I spent, I didn't do internships in tech. I, I worked at a music camp. Uh, I was a I, I was and I'm a pretty serious amateur musician. And so I had like no experience whatsoever in the tech industry. I remember my first week at Google, uh, uh, my first day at Google, actually, I was, um, I, I won't say whom, but I, my tech lead was this incredible, incredible guy is now a distinguished engineer at Google. And, uh, and it was my first morning there. And I didn't, I, I remember asking him permission to go to the bathroom. I said, you know, Hey, you know, I need to go to the bathroom. And he's like, you don't need to tell me that, you know, <laughs> like I had no idea what it was like to work in an office. I'd worked in ice cream stores and in music camps and stuff like that. But I, I look back, I was just incredibly naive. I love the technology, but I was so naive about everything related to being in a business, much less running a business. So it's funny to look back on that time. So how was, how was the, uh, because obviously now Google is, is one of the toughest places to get in, uh, in terms of, of getting a job. So so what was the what was the process back then? Um, you know, it was it was um, heavily indexed towards PhD level computer science sort of algorithm stuff. I mean, in retrospect, I think their process was actually pretty bad um, in some ways. Like they were able to um, they were intentionally biasing towards false negatives, as in they were much happier to reject people that were good than to accept people who were bad, right? Which is probably the right call, but. Uh, I happened to love my algorithms classes, so I did great in that interview. But I remember once I got there and I was conducting interviews, I would be asking the same questions out of the same database of people who'd worked in the industry for 15 or 20 years. And they often had no idea what the answers were because they hadn't been in school for 20 years. And these are many times the questions we were asking had no bearing on the day-to-day -day work of an engineer, even a very good engineer. So um, it was it was a very intellectual kind of PhD-ish culture. And that had um, that had seeped into everything, including their interview process. So it's selected for people who did well in school, <laughs> especially in computer science. And sometimes that translated well, um, to being a good engineer, but, but not always, I, I can say more about that if you want, but it, it was a funny time. But how, how many people were at the time that you joined? I was about employee of 1000. I think it was in the, in between 1000 and 1100 somewhere. Wow, I mean, and today it's like ninety-eight thousand. The, the the parents, Is that right? it? it's so for you. <laughs> I've lost track, frankly. What yeah, it was um, it was a very different scene. It was a very different scene back then. Although it wasn't all roses, right? It's like my direct manager was a great guy. I mean, he had hundred and fifty direct reports. I don't mean there are hundred and fifty people in his org, but he had hundred and fifty direct reports, which is to say, he had no idea what I was working on. I mean, we didn't even have one-on-ones. It was I only met him when I was getting promoted, really. So I'd go in there, he'd hand me a letter and say, I heard you're doing a great job. And like, that's pretty much all we would say to each other. I mean, it was, it was, there was like almost no management, um, which they thought of as being a feature, although ultimately I think caused some problems, you know? Yeah, no, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. So, so you were here for nine years. So, I mean, here you had the experience to be part of, of one of the most uh, iconic companies of our time. So, so how were these nine years for you, Ben? It was, it was a transformative time for me for a lot of reasons. I, uh, I learned so much there and I'm very grateful for the time I, I had at Google for sure. The first couple of years, I actually wasn't particularly happy with my technical work. I was, um, I was working on the ad system and 
uh, that's fine. But the particular project I was working on never really made much sense to me from a product standpoint. And and I do like working on technology, but it has to be for some kind of purpose. And and the thing we were building it, again, it just it seemed like kind of a, a moonshot to me. But we weren't launching and iterating. We were just working and working and working. And we spent you know two to three years working on this thing. We finally released it, and I think it made like. $30,000 a year of revenue. This is something that we spent, you know, 20 person years on at Google where, you know, you could, you could, uh, you could publish anything on google.com and you should be able to make $20,000 a year. It was just an incredible failure from a product standpoint. And, and I, I think, um, it w- even though the technology we were developing was fascinating and ended up being incorporated into some really powerful things, I found that really disappointing. And, and to me, it, it did reinforce that for me. I don't, I don't like working on things just because they're technically interesting, which this was. It needs to be useful or impactful. And that project was really not. I, I met someone, um, they had this uh, this meetup thing at, within Google where you you were, um, you were opted into this, pro- this program and they, they looked at everything from how long you've been out of school, what languages you worked in, your reporting structure, what building you worked in. And they found the person at Google who is literally the opposite like the furthest from you in all of these dimensions that they could possibly find. And they set up a half an hour meeting between you and them with no agenda. And the person who was the furthest from me was this woman, Sharon Pearl, who is fantastic, who is a a very accomplished systems researcher. And she had been working on about four or five different projects. And, uh, and I really latched onto one of them was this prototype of this thing called Dapper, which was um, a, a system within Google to, to track these, you know, Google's processing, whatever it is, a hundred million requests per second or some crazy number like that. It tracks every single request, uh, of every service at Google and follows it as it hops from service to service. And by the time the request comes back to the user half a second later, it's often traversed thousands of services. I thought it was intellectually interesting and also very useful to pair the thing I was just talking about with this ads project. And I just, I just committed myself to working on that thing. It was unstaffed at that time. It was just a prototype. Um, but because my manager had 150 reports, no one knew what I was doing. And it was a total free-for-all at the time. So I just basically started working on that. And I dove way, way, way deep into that. And I spent, you know, three years around that project, built a team around it, et cetera, et cetera. And that actually is kind of the foundation for what I'm working on now at Lightstep. It was a hugely impactful thing for Google in that um, it, it gave them, finally, they had a tool to, to make their, uh, not just web search, but make all their products faster and more reliable um, in ways that were kind of non-local. Like it could see the whole system um, at once. And, and I, I just thought that was both fascinating and really useful. And, and I've been kind of obsessed with that problem really ever since that was about 2005 or so. Got it. And obviously nine years, you know, gives a, you know, it's, it's time for, for doing a lot of stuff and for learning a lot of things. So now looking back, obviously now you, you're looking at it more from a leadership position where you have your own business. And we're going to be talking about talking about that in just a little bit, but I I just want to ask you three different things. And I would like to, to learn and also for our listeners to learn what has been your biggest takeaway. So let's start with the first one. What was your biggest takeaway or learning about software engineering during your time at Google? You know, that's a really, really good question. Um, uh, can I give two? Is that possible? Go for it. Hard for me to... Uh, so there, there are two things that really stand out. Um, one is a piece of advice that I, I heard from Jeff Dean, who is like a demigod level engineer at Google that I think is well known outside of the company. He invented, you know, 
um, Bigtable and Spanner, as well as MapReduce and Google Brain, and just incredible guy. And one thing that he would say is that you can really only design a system, um, any software system, for about three orders of magnitude of of scale. Um, and outside of that range, it's not going to be the right system. So that is to say, you could build something for Google scale, it's probably not the right thing for a small company. Or you can design something for a small a small company, and it's probably not the right thing for Google. Um, this It sounds obvious, but over and over again, I see people not just pitching, but actually trying to build software that will work for all scales. And it doesn't work. Like It's like almost a law of nature that that doesn't work. And um, the most important thing you can do if you're sitting down to build a net new product or a net new system or whatever is to figure out like what scale is this designed for anyway and make sure that you sort that out before you start writing any code because otherwise you're definitely wasting your time because you're not going to build something that's going to work perfectly for everyone. Um, that was a huge lesson for me and something that, um, although it sounds kind of obvious, I, I see people not taking that advice over and over and over again, especially when they start companies and don't have a clear focus yet. Uh, the second lesson to me was really something I got when I was, uh, when I was looking into PhD programs in 2007, I almost left Google to be, become a PhD student in uh, computational neuroscience. And I didn't know much about that field. Um, but I was really excited about it. And I was looking for guidance from these people who were going to be my advisors. And the first couple of places I visited after I was admitted, they were, you know, as you'd imagine, they're just trying to sell you on joining their lab. Um, the, the third place I went, um, I actually, I got a very different pitch. And this was the most influential advice I've ever gotten in my career in terms of who I am and what I want to do. This guy was, again, he was the, the he was going to be my advisor at NYU. And uh, if I had taken, you know, if I'd said yes to this offer and he sat me down and said, there are three types of people like you and me. Um, there are mathematicians, scientists, and engineers. And uh, the mathematicians are the smartest ones in the room. They prove things that are true or false they can do it like in, you know, in a dark corner without talking to anybody else. The, um, you're not smart enough to be a mathematician. Neither am I. Um, God bless them for their tools. And I, I'm totally with them at this point. I've, I've always loved math, but I'm not, I'm not as smart as those people who go on and do postdocs at MIT and stuff. I just can't do it. I'm not that smart. The second type of people are scientists. And, and he went on and said, scientists, they like asking questions that are interesting and they like discussing the results writing papers, going to conferences, and they're interested in the pursuit of knowledge for its own sake. And that's what science is all about. By the way, this is like a half an hour chat, right? I'm summarizing it in, in two minutes. And then he said the third type of people are engineers. Engineers, they like to build things because they're useful. When they break, they want to know why. They want to know how to make it bigger and faster next time and more resilient. And they like building things, again, to have an impact and to be useful. And then he said, I'm almost positive that you're an engineer. This is a science department. If you come here and you're an engineer and you don't want to do science, you're going to be unhappy. You're going to leave and it'll be bad for you and bad for my lab. So if you want to come here and buy a, be a scientist, by all means, you're welcome. Otherwise, I think you should stay exactly where you are or at least go and build something. And I thought it was like the best advice I've ever gotten. And I, I've thought about it over and over again as I evaluate candidates. Oftentimes I see candidates who are so smart, but I can tell that they're actually a scientist. And if you put a scientist in an engineering project, they might tell you it's not interesting um, because it, it might not be actually advancing the state of knowledge. It's just really useful. And and it's a, it's an interesting way to think about the world. And, and you know, at LightStep, we've actually tried to structure our engineering interview process to, to select for people who want to have an impact. 
first and foremost, and they want to build stuff first and foremost. But I think for people who have that disposition, that's a great combination to be an entrepreneur, to really want to build things and have an impact, as opposed to working on things that are quote unquote interesting, which I think is kind of the death knell of a small company. Like you have to want to have an impact, emotionally want to have an impact, not just because your investors want you to have an impact. And so that's something I think about all the time as well. That's very, very profound. So the next one. So biggest takeaway from your time at Google around technical leadership, which is not leadership. You know, there's so much out there about leadership, but technical leadership. Ben. Keep it simple. <laughs> <laughs> and why, I, why yeah, I'm really, really weary of people coming up with these really elaborate designs for things. It's like good technology is actually pretty easy to describe. It actually goes right back to what I was just saying, you know. If you want to get a paper published, make it complicated. If you want to build a useful system, keep it simple. Yeah, that's a good one. And that leads me to the next one. Biggest takeaway of product positioning, Ben. Well, I mean, it's hard to, to talk about this without sounding um, like I'm just repeating something we've all heard a million times. But at the risk of doing that, I think understanding um, what problem you're solving and making sure that it's something that's like hair on fire painful for someone, right? It's like, it can't be nice to have. It has to be super painful. And you need to know what problem that is more than you know what solution you have. Like, and, and I do see a lot of people, you know, running around with their solution, looking to figure out how to apply it. And, you know, that's just not a good way to build a product. So I think um, it can be focused. It could be a small user base. It can be all sorts of things like that. But it has to be super, super painful to somebody uh, and you have to, have to understand that pain and where it comes from very deeply in order to, to properly think about your solution. Wow. Wow. And in 2012, let's, let's fast forward to 2012. So this uh, would mark the over nine years that uh, you were at Google, a senior staff software engineer. All you knew out of school was, uh, was Google. That's why you knew about, you know, your professional, uh, side, no? And, and why did you decide to leave Ben? Um, that's a good question. I mean, it, it, it certainly wasn't with total confidence. I remember trying very, very hard to make sure that I didn't burn any bridges. I think I gave them nine months of notice before I left. I told my boss nine months in advance that I was going to leave. Like I, I really love that company and I, I don't, uh, I, that was one of my goals is to make sure I could come back if it didn't work out, you know? So I, I, uh, uh, it was with a lot of, um, hemming and hawing, but what eventually led me to leave was, um, really just a recognition that I was still pretty young. You know, I, at that time I was 32, 33. I have no intention of retiring or anything like that. I, I love working. And I just didn't, I just didn't feel like I was learning new core skills. I mean, every project I took on, it was a different set of challenges and so on and so forth, but it was applying the same basic set of skills to each of those problems. And I, I think I just felt, you know, I'm not a religious person. Um, I don't believe in an afterlife. This is my one shot. And I spend most of my time working uh, you know, outside of sleeping. And I, I just wanted to work on something totally new and, and to stretch myself and have an impact in some other way. And when I got to thinking about it, I realized that, um, you know, not a dig on Google, but it's, it's almost impossible to innovate, uh, at a company like Google in the same way that you can in the, you know, in the wide open when you have, um, when you can control your own destiny. And, and I, I just didn't know how I was going to get the sort of, experiences that I wanted and have the impact that I, I, I wanted to have, um, while still at Google. So that led me to leave the company. Um, I, I spent 
several months working for a friend's startup um, just to kind of help out. And, uh, you know, he got some free technical, well, it wasn't free, but he got some pretty cheap technical advice. And I got uh, a lot of experience in other areas. I tried to spend as much time as I could with the people who are not engineers to that company, the people in BD and marketing, et cetera, just to understand those other functions. Um, and uh, and then eventually went and, you know, set out on my own. So what did that look like? Because I understand that you went and you launched a social media company. So tell us about that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was an interesting experience. I, I basically, I, I didn't like Facebook as a product, uh, and, and my complaint about Facebook was that, as a you know, as a human being, I go on Facebook, I compare my experience as a person, which is always pretty complex. Like most people, you know, I have good days and bad days, and I'd compare that to the vacation photos of my high school friends, and it's just not a good experience. Like it made me feel upset, <laughs> you know, not like devastated or something, but it just wasn't a fun experience to go and compare my inner world to other people's vacation photos. And I did some reading and I realized that this has actually been studied. And it turns out my experience of Facebook is pretty ubiquitous. And I wanted to build a product that um, had the, the good aspects of social media and that it would connect people and, uh, and, you know, make them feel like they're not, you know, an island or whatever, but it would do it through a more sincere and authentic um, means. And and so, I, you know, long story short, I raised a seed round for that, which um, I'm very grateful for. It was uh, and hired a, a great team. We built the product that I had in mind, and it kind of worked. Um, we would retain people. Uh, the people who the product um, appealed to would say things like. I mean, direct quotes like this, this product has changed my life. It's got me through hard times. Most important app on my phone, things like that. And then I'd ask the same people who said that kind of stuff. So who would you tell about this? And they would say, I would never talk about it. It's way too personal, <laughs> way too private. And I realized that we built a product that it did appeal to certain people, but they were almost all depressed introverts. And I like depressed introverts as people, but they're a rotten, uh, they're a rotten audience. If you're trying to build a growth product around viral marketing, it just doesn't work. You know, like they won't talk about it. So I went back to the investors and made a very detailed analysis of why this product was like literally never going to work. Um, one of them actually told me that uh, she had subsequently anonymized my deck, like taken my name, taken the company's branding off of it, and had shown it to other consumer companies in her portfolio to say, this is how you should measure failure. <laughs> it was like, we failed so profoundly, um, but measured it very carefully that it was obvious we should not proceed with that product. If we'd continued, we would have had to pivot it into either like some kind of paid therapy app, which I have no judgment about, but I just, that's not interesting to me or like a kind of perv hookup app, which I also don't have a judgment about, but definitely don't want to spend my career on, uh, or maybe into like a bullying app, like for high school kids to bully each other, which I do have judgment about, and I'm not going to do. So I just saw no path forward for the product. And, uh, and then investors, I gave them the option to take all their money back, which I felt like was the right thing to do. I had only, I'd spent less than half of it at that point. Uh, and said, if you want to stick with the company, I'm loving this being an entrepreneur thing. I love it, but I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. Um, and I, I told them if I did something else, I wanted it to be technically deep and interesting, um, partly because I like doing that, but also because I realized that my skill set is really deep technology. That's what I'm good at. And if, if I want to start a business, the risk in the business should be technical. Like we should, I should be choosing a problem where the, the main reason it won't work is that it's too hard to build it. Uh, and, um, and what I had been doing in social media absolutely was not like that yeah. kind of problem. So I, I, I was, so I was bored and not that effective on social media. 
Um, I also wanted to build something that was immensely valuable to somebody and that would thus have a pretty high price point. Uh, and, you know, to my, you know, unending gratitude, they stuck with me. I, I may have been able to raise another round at that point, but I think emotionally I was so exhausted by the failed startup thing that I don't know if I really had it in me to kind of go through that whole process again. Uh, I recapped myself to bring on two fantastic co-founders, um, and then we're still sitting in the same cap table uh, as that crazy social media thing. That was a total failure. Um, I, Lightstep has been very successful since that period. That was early 2015. And we've stuck with the vision uh, pretty much unaltered um, this entire time. And I've had a really good run of it. Um, but, you know, it was, um, it, was a, it was a weird transition going through that like pretty profound failure and then coming out the other side with a much clearer idea of what I wanted out of my career and what kind of company I wanted to build. So what were those days? Because, you know, failure, not, not a lot of people talk about it, but, you know, funny enough from failure is where you get your biggest learnings. So how were those dark days for you? How did you deal with those dark days and how did you bounce back? Um, I mean, yeah, definitely was, it was a plenty of failure to go around during that period. Uh, I think I leaned on uh, what I've always felt um, whenever I'm challenged in that way, which, you know, happens from time to time still, right? It's like, there's always good days and bad days. I, I actually think about some advice I got from Jay Krebs, who's um, the CEO at uh, co-founder at Confluent. And, you know, something he says is just that he focuses on, on, um, on making, you know, taking pride in, in playing the cards he's dealt, you know, like you, you can't really control the cards you're dealt in this industry. You can have a little bit of influence on them, but in any given quarter, any given week or whatever it is, you only have certain cards you can play. And I think, um, that's something I, I, I didn't have those words for it at the time, but, uh, but that's how I think about it. When I'd get stressed out, I would just return to the things that actually were under my control and just take pride in, in making the best decisions I could. Um, it's too stressful. If you try to take control over everything, you just don't. You don't have control over most of it. And actually, the definition of stress in you know in a textbook is responsibility without control. If you feel like you're responsible um, for the outcome of a company, especially a venture bet company where someone has some very high aspirations for you, um, it can be incredibly stressful. And I think if you can bring yourself back to feeling primarily personal responsibility for the things that are actually under your control. You can you can make it through those periods and um, and you know kind of hang your head high the whole time. So th that's how I thought of it. And and how do you determine what you can control and what you can't control? Well, I mean, frankly, there's not a lot you can control. Um, so most things you can't control. <laughs> I mean, I think the things I can control are the people around me, uh, the way I spend my time, and uh, not just at work, but also at other things. Like I've always been pretty meticulous about trying to spend enough time with my family, uh, not just because it's like the right thing to do, although I think it is also the right thing to do, but it's net selfish for me. Like having a kid at the same time that I started this company was a really interesting experience for me. And I, I thought was one that uh, it felt pretty risky at the time, like, oh my gosh, is this going to be this crazy Faustian bargain? And it really wasn't. I think for me, um, uh, before I had kids, work was absolutely the most important thing to me. And also the way I was trying to to justify my own existence. I already said I'm not a particularly religious person, right? So it's like work was the way I justified my existence. And after having kids, that went out the window. And my kids are the reason that are the most important thing 
in terms of my contribution to the universe, as far as I'm concerned. And that actually was a great thing for work because now I don't feel this, like the, the, the fear of failure professionally is restricted to the professional domain. And it's no longer like if, if my company fails, it would be a very dark thing for me. And I'm sure I'd have a tough year or whatever, but it's not going to, it's it, it, the, the earth will continue rotating on its axis because it's not like literally the most important thing to me psychologically. And, you know, so th- those are the sorts of, um, the things I control are the things that, that, uh, simple things, emails, hiring, stuff like that. And uh, the things that are out of my control, they may, you know, give me a dark day here or there, but, but I, I've, I've constructed my life in a way that it's, um, it, it's not going to be a catastrophic failure for me, which actually frees me up to take m- much larger risks. Wow. That's uh, very powerful. You know, I remember that one of the um, uh, really profound pieces of advice that I learned about this was, uh, you know, when a coach, you know, I, I had a, um, a leadership uh, coach, you know, really fantastic. And I recommend anyone, you know, that is running a startup to have one. And there was one piece of advice, you know, I remember we were doing a pivot and, and he said, the, if the company fails, you're not a failure. The company just failed. That's it. Because one of the issues that, that founders, you know, one of the mistakes that the founders make is that they, they get so attached to their business that they think they are the business. And, and ultimately, you know, just like you said, you know, like the, the sun is going to continue to go up and, you know, the company is going to be in the past and you've you got to continue to move forward. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, I want to be clear that it's not because I don't care about it. I mean, I care deeply about this company. It's just that it, to me, learning how to care a little bit less is actually necessary if you want to take risks. Like if, if, if you can't detach yourself a little bit, it's too frightening to take big risks. And, and that's death as an entrepreneur, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So here you are, you know, obviously you, you were, you went through this bumpy ride. And then after this, you made um, a list of 60 things that, uh, you know, you thought had some type of market opportunity. Then you recruited your founders and lights, Lightstep was born. So, um, so walk us through through the early days of this. How how did it happen? What how did you incubate this? Like, t- tell us about it. Yeah, sure. And just one point of clarification: I made a list of sixty things with my co-founders that that we could imagine spending ten or twenty years of our life on, cool. and only three of them had a market opportunity. Unfortunately, <laughs> so most of them were things that were like that would be really cool and kind of impactful, maybe. But the timing is just like we're off by a couple of decades or whatever that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, so unfortunately, fifty-seven of them had no market opportunity. Three of them did. We decided on this one of the three uh, just because it felt better. Like, you know, at some point you have to put the spreadsheets away and just think about what actually feels exciting. And, and this one just felt the best to us. Um, you know, we, uh, we did a couple of things right early on. I think we were, we were wise to, um, to just focus on getting into production as quickly as possible. Our, our product that, you know, what, what we're working on, uh, is basically a piece of technology that, um, that large engine engineering organizations, put into production and leave there hundred percent of the time. And it allows their development organizations to move with a lot more confidence and agility as they, you know, build faster products, basically. So, um, we're kind of a performance tool as well as a way for engineers to spend less time on operational, um, firefighting activities. So, so it, none of this works unless we're in production and getting, um, something like what we're building to run in production in a real large deep system is a hard thing to do if you have no brand and no customers. Uh, and 
we were pretty laser focused on making that happen, at, you know, come hell or high water. Like we absolutely were not trying to get paid for those first contracts. We just wanted to get, um, we just wanted to get the software some use. And we were able to do that very quickly. I mean, we had real data coming in from, you know, real companies within a couple of months. And by the end of that first year in 2015, uh, they were from companies that we've all heard of. And that, that was a really good call. Cause I think, uh, a lot of people, um, when they're building products that have to sit somewhere like that, spend too long in kind of an internal focused R and D phase without actually getting uh, real customer data. And, uh, and, and we probably shaved years off of, you know, a process if, if we'd gone a different route. Um, the other thing that we did that I thought was pretty smart early on was we, we structured our contracts, um, to be, uh, we, it was, you know, it typically, if you're doing enterprise software like this, that's, you know, it's, it's expensive for a reason, but it's not cheap. Um, you, you try to get customers to, uh, commit and even pay the year up front and things like that, that can really slow down the sales process. And uh, especially if you're a small company that hasn't launched yet. And we did a lot of work to, um, uh, to structure the contracts to be a bit of a handshake at first where we would get the benefit of a pricing conversation, which for us was less about the money and more about understanding what language the customer is using to even think about value. We would have the pricing conversation up front, but in actual fact, the contracts are very, very loose. Like the, the buyer, if they'd wanted to, you know, to um, make a squirm about six months into the contract, they could have canceled and paid nothing. Um, we, we did about five of those deals um, with a handshake on price, essentially. And the rest of it was just, you know, the standard legal protections, a hundred percent of those five renewed, none of them backed out of anything. And they knew that we built something valuable and wanted to continue with it. And that got us into production much, much faster. And I think that was a, a hugely beneficial thing for LightStep as well. Um, so this is all to say that by the end of, you know, a year or so, we had a bunch of uh, name brand logos who were using LightStep and were excited about it and getting to that place that quickly was just a, a huge thing for the momentum of the company uh, in in many ways. Um, you know, from uh, you know getting additional customers to fundraising to whatever. And how how do you guys make money with this? Um, we make money uh, through you know large enterprise contracts, basically. So uh, it, the units of pricing and so on and so forth. Might I'm not sure if that's something that you're your listeners want to hear all the details about, but, um, but it's, a uh, it's, you know, it's a SAS basically. So it, it's, uh, because of the size of the agreements, they're almost always annualized, um, SAS subscriptions. Got it. And how do you go about fundraising for the business? That's a great question. And something that I've really learned a lot about over the course of, of the last couple of years. I mean, in the beginning, it was just sort of a haphazard thing about who I already knew and everything, uh, combined with a bunch of, um, meetings with people I didn't already know. And I realized that I really don't like meeting people while I'm fundraising. And I also don't like pitching for fundraising. I think it actually sets up the wrong dynamic. I think the best way to fundraise in my mind is to figure out, you know, which people you're going to want to fundraise from in your next round. And as soon as you possibly can set up meetings with them with a very transparent, I'm not pitching you. I'm not looking for money kind of stance, have those meetings and just go in there and say, listen, I want to open the books a little bit. We're not fundraising right now. And I want your advice and have a conversation where you actually got some advice from them about something real, like talk about something that's not working. Don't pitch them, tell them something's not working. They, everyone knows every company has some problem all the time. I mean, I have one right now, right? It's like, we all have something we're working on. Go talk to them about that problem and see how that feels. You know, if it feels good, 
they're going to be super helpful to you and they'll probably get pretty excited because they're going to feel that they could solve this problem too. And that generates, it gives you a signal on what it will be like to work with them after the fundraising is closed. Because, you know, newsflash, like after you close the fundraising, you have this person on your board for like seven or 10 years, like you'd better like working with them, you know? So it gives you a signal on how that's going to feel. And it gives them a signal on what it's like to work with you and how that's going to feel for them because they have actually the same concern. And then best of all, if it feels good, it's going to make them like a thousand times more excited about investing in your company. And I think when it came to, you know, to raise, um, when it came time to raise money for us, we already knew the people and they already knew us that we wanted to work with. And that made the whole process um, feel a lot more honest. And it also felt a lot easier. Like it just wasn't this like crazy dog and pony show for us. And, and um, you know, part of that was due to excitement about the company and so on and so forth. But I think part of it was because we set up the conversations to be on the same side of the table instead of us pitching someone really hard, which immediately actually creates an oppositional dynamic where they have to question whether or not you're being honest and so on. So I, I think that was a, a nice way to structure uh, the fundraising, you know, years out from the actual date. It's like the saying goes, you go for money, you get advice, you go for advice, you get money twice. So, um, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm there. I'm there with you. So, so Ben, so how much capital have you guys raised for the company that is uh, publicly reported? Uh, I think the exact number is like $71.5 million or something like that, but it's, it's a little over $70 million. Got it. And how, how big is the company? How many employees do you guys have today? Um, we're, we're past a hundred people now, uh, in the last month or so. Um, I, I honestly, the exact number is, is such a moving, I've seen the last couple of days we've hired several new people just over the weekend in Slack. So I, I can't even keep track of the right number anymore. Got it. And just to follow up on the, on the fundraising side, I mean, you guys have unbelievable, like, like unbelievable VCs. I mean, you have without going too far Sequoia, right? So one of the top guys, uh, one of the top firms, really uh, in the um, in the in the venture world. So, how long was the process of going for like the first piece of advice until you were able to get them to to, to come on board on your Series B? That's a tough question to answer. Um, I uh, I was actually. Um, an incredible, incredible admirer of uh, Bill Corin when he was SVP of engineering at Google. He was, you know, not like my skip level or something, but he was like five levels above me when I was at Google. And, and once a year or so, I'd get to have a one-on-one -on -one with him. And I always really looked forward to it. Uh, he's now a partner at Sequoia and I'd known him for a while. Arif Halali, who is actually the um, partner who led the round, um, uh, Bill goes to our board meetings, but Arif, I met, um, much, uh, you know, closer to the fundraising than I'd known Bill, but, um, RF was, uh, I think I met him probably about a year and a half or two years in advance of the series B when Sequoia came in, um, something like that. And, uh, and I've always had a, a great relationship with him as well. And what do you think makes a firm like Sequoia so legendary? I mean, you can't, <laughs> you can't mess around with their track record, right? It's like, I think that's a big part of it. I do think, you know, I'm, I'm not um, privy to the internal workings of VC firms and everything, but I, I get a sense from the people I know there and just the way that they do business that, uh, they mean a lot of what they say around, um, uh, it's especially in the generation of Sequoia partners that, that are investing now, I think they really mean what they say about uh, having kind of a second bottom line. Like, you know, their LPs are a pretty impressive group of nonprofits and so on and so forth. And they cap their fund. Uh, I mean, if they wanted to raise a fund that was larger, I bet it could be like 
six times larger than it is right now, and they'd still be way oversubscribed. They cap their fund. The LPs that they work with are all pretty mission-driven organizations. And the people there, I mean, I'm sure they're not, I'm sure they're depositing their carry checks. It's not like they don't get paid or something, but <laughs> I, think that they, I think that they enjoy the fact that um, most of them uh, were ex-operators and they love the thrill of the fight, I think. And, and they just, I think that they're all, you know, pretty obsessed with their jobs and everything, but they're also, um, they're in it for the right reasons. I think they just like, they love uh, identifying and disrupting big markets. I think they really, really love it. And when you talk to them and you kind of have that conversation with them, you can feel that fire in their belly. Like, I, I mean, a lot of them have pretty impressive training as MBAs and so on and so forth as well. But I sense an entrepreneurial spirit um, in the partners, partnership there. I'm not saying they're unique in that regard, but it's just so overwhelming when you talk to them. Yeah, no, I hear you. I hear you. And and I guess uh, going back to Lightstep, in a world where the vision is fully realized, uh, how, how does that world look like? We're making the world a better place. No, I'm, I'll give you a real answer. Um, so <laughs> okay. when, our, when our vision is fully realized, um, I, I mean, to me, the way that, you know, software is evolving right now is both exciting and kind of terrifying. Like you have um, our entire economy, I mean, the global economy is moving to be built around and on top of and within software. I mean, it's absolutely the fabric of the economy. It already is. And it's just going to get more and more profound um, as time goes on. And that's that's cool and everything. But the, the way that these applications have been built um, by thousands of developers, it's kind of terrifying. Like, it's like, it, it's almost like, um, it, it feels a little bit like we're asking people, um, I don't know what's the right metaphor uh, to build cars and we're handing them a bunch of iron ore or something like that. And we're saying, you know, good luck, like figure it out. Like the, the tools that people are using to build software are, are so fragile compared to the reliability we need from the software itself. And Lightstep's start is, is about helping, you know, developers of software build more reliable systems with more confidence and faster. But the long-term goal for me, for Lightstep, and the thing that the founders, you know, got together and got excited about was really that everyone involved with this entire process, certainly including end users, should feel way more confident about the software that we're building than we do today. Uh, and the only way to, to make that a reality is, is, to, is to get in there at the fabric of the software itself and change the way that it's being built. Um, we've started with this performance and reliability stuff because that's an easy place to insert. But our vision longer term is really to change the way that people develop software um, to make it kind of reliable by default, reliable by design. And that requires, um, you know, really rebuilding the the infrastructure all the way up. And, and that's what I'd like to see happen for Lightstep in the long term. So one of the questions, Ben, that I that I typically ask the folks that, that we have on the show is, knowing what you know now, I mean, it's a, you know, you've been, you've been around the block, you know, you, you've seen, you know, many, many things on, on building, scaling, financing, all of that good stuff. So if you had the chance to go back in time and have a chat with your younger self, uh, and, you know, to that younger Ben that was coming out of Google and perhaps, you know, thinking about launching a business, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why about launching a business? That's a really, uh, it's a good question. One I think about all the time, actually. Uh, and I try to advise other founders just for fun. You know, um, I, I like doing this stuff and I, I, the advice I typically give them and I would give myself is, um, to, to think sooner about building, um, building 
not just a bunch of engineers and product managers, but building a full executive team as early as possible. Um, it was something that I, I don't think I really uh, thought about as a serious team building exercise until we'd already raised the Series B. I mean, we had the, some of the executives in place, but it wasn't focused as a team. Um, and and it's not um, it, it's a little bit hard to uh, to put into words what the difference is, uh, but. Uh, I, I think what you, what you end up is you, you have more dissension and more arguments, uh, probably about the way the company should be focusing and spending its time and resources, but that's actually a really good thing. I think in the beginning we were so monomaniacally focused on product and getting, and I guess a certain degree sales, um, but only in the sense of getting it into individual customers' hands that we didn't think about the rest of the business in a holistic way. And I think having a full exec team earlier, uh, would have, um, or even just appointing people to represent certain aspects of the business earlier, we would have been working in parallel uh, on other aspects of the business in the early days that uh, that we didn't really uh, focus on until you know a couple of years in. Very profound, very profound, Ben. So for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I love getting email, and uh, so you can reach out to me at um, bhs, my initials, um, at gmail.com or at lightstep.com, either one. And uh, Twitter is good too. I'm EL underscore BHS, LBHS. Uh, and my DMs are open. So those are both great ways to get in touch with me. Wonderful. Well, Ben, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Dealmaker Show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.